This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And you're listening to James Brown, the godfather of soul. Born James Joe Brown Jr. on this day in history, May 3rd, 1933. In a one-room shack in the woods of Barnwell, South Carolina, a few miles east of the Georgia border. His parents split when he was very young, and at the age of four, Brown was sent to Augusta, Georgia to live with his Aunt Honey, the madam of a brothel. Good start. Growing up in poverty during the Great Depression, a young Brown worked whatever odd jobs he could find, for literally pennies. He danced for the soldiers at nearby Fort Gordon, picked cotton, washed cars, shined shoes. Here, James Brown talks about the ambition he had as a child. My ambition was to eat. We were very hungry. We were very poor people. And and singing was one way my music was able. I was able to earn a a living. I was able to... We were living in a home one time where we had over 19 people in a home and the rent was only $5 a month. And they couldn't get it. And I went and tap danced for the soldiers and made $12. Was able to pay the rent for, tw- for two months. So that's what music was for me. I, had, I was able to go out and get and make a decent life for myself. Like some people said to be a secretary, a secretary, an interviewer, a cameraman, an actor, or whatever. I was able to go with music. And I was able to, God gave me this inside uh, talent and uh, just in the vision and be able to, to make myself very, very much uh, aware and, and independent in my music. And I'm very lucky. Very lucky indeed. God-given talent and he seized upon it early. Dismissed from school at the age of 12 for insufficient clothing, Brown turned to working his various odd jobs full-time. As an escape from the harsh reality of growing up black in the rural South during the Great Depression, Brown turned to religion and to music. He sang in the church choir, where he developed his powerful and uniquely emotive voice. As a teen, Brown turned to crime, though, and at age 16, he was arrested for stealing a car and sentenced to three years in prison. While incarcerated, Brown organized and led a prison gospel choir and met Bobby Bird. Here, James Brown talks about how prison changed his life. At the age of 16 years old, I was a juvenile delinquent in Lord in, 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 uh, in uh, Rome, Georgia. And I got out of there. I was probably before I went there in school. But uh, I believe the people around here see that it was a need to bring me up, to raise me. I think they put me in prison to raise me. Because the people around here, I, my father told me that uh, my dad, is, it, it told my father that uh, that was the best place for James to go. They let me play the piano there. And I drew those kids and they went crazy. I sang gospel. And everything I touched turned to gold in a way of bringing people together. Always a gifted athlete, upon his release from prison in 1953, Brown turned his attention to sports and devoted the next two years primarily to boxing and playing semi-pro baseball. But in 1955, Bobby Bird invited Brown to join his R&B vocal group, the Gospel Starlighters. Brown accepted And with his overbearing talent and showmanship, he quickly became the dominant force in that group. Renamed the famous Flames, they moved to Macon, Georgia, where they performed at local nightclubs. Here, again, James Brown talks about this important time in his young life. It was very, very hard. I 
1955, 56, until uh, my release, please, 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 I recorded the last of 55, and we released it, we released it in 56. It was very hard. Uh, please, please was a dynamite song, a high energy show, but then when I got Try Me in 59, uh -huh. it began, I hit the pop charts, and I began to see the world. Things started happening for me. In 1956, as he said, the Flames recorded a demo tape of that song, Please, 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 and played it for Ralph Bass, a talent scout for King Records. He offered the group a record contract, and within months, Please, Please, Please had reached number six on the R&B charts. Here, James Brown talks about meeting Ralph and what happened next. A fellow was named by the name of Ralph Bass. He was on his way to... He was going through Macon, Georgia, en route, I think, to New Orleans, and he stopped over. And he heard this record on the air, and everybody was started jumping up and down. He was sitting in the bus station, saying, who's this guy? I never heard that record before. They say, it's not really a record. It's a local group. It's a local group. Who's that? It says, James Brown and the Famous Flames. And it was one of the old records that you play inside out. <laughs> Believe that? And you're running real there. fast, you know. And uh, he uh, went to see my manager. And we were in Tampa, Florida, and uh, they called us and wanted us, to, wanted us to come to Cincinnati, Ohio, and record it for King Records under the, under the supervision of Mr. Nathan, Sid Nathan. And uh, we had to drive 900 miles. The first time I've ever stayed in a hotel with a television. And uh, I was really proud, and, and we worked very hard. You don't forget a thing like that, do you? The Flames immediately hit the road, touring the Southeast while opening for such legendary musicians as B.B. King and Ray Charles. Imagine the education James got out on that road. But the band didn't have a repeat hit to match the success of Please, Please, Please. And by the end of 57, the Flames had returned home. Needing a creative spark and in danger of losing his record deal, in 1958, Brown moved to New York City. We're working with different musicians whom he also called the Flames, recorded Try Me. The song reached number one on the R&B charts, cracked the 100 singles chart, and kick-started Brown's music career. He soon followed with a string of hits that included Lost Someone, Night Train, and Prisoner of Love. His first song to crack the top ten on the pop charts, peaking at number two. This is Lee Habib, the life of James Brown, born on this day in history. The rest of this remarkable life story, starting from nothing, from abject poverty to be one of the great stars in the history of the music business. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories.
is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. On this day in history, James Brown was born. And there's no more iconic song than this one. And again, remember, now that you know, Brown's father, his papa got a brand new bag. And he didn't have one. And so when he sings about this, he knows from whence he sings. From his own personal experience, Stevie Wonder would dig deep in this well as well. So many great African-American artists would do the same. On a single night, and a very important night in Brown's life, October 24, 1962, Brown recorded a live concert album that would change his life at the legendary Apollo Theater uptown in New York City in a place called Harlem. Initially opposed by King Records because it featured no new songs. Oh, the horror. Live at the Apollo proved Brown's greatest commercial success yet, peaking at number two on the pop album charts and firmly establishing his crossover appeal. Here's the introduction to James Brown and the famous Flames by Fats Gonder from that recording. The band starts their set by playing I'll Go Crazy. So now, ladies and gentlemen, it is start time. Are you ready for start time? Thank you, and thank you very kindly. It is indeed a great pleasure to present to you at this particular time, national and international known as the hardest working man in show business, man that's saying, I'll go crazy. Try me. You've got the power. Think. If you want me, I don't mind. Bewildered. Million dollar seller lost someone. The very latest release, Night Train. Let's everybody shout and shimmy. Mr. Dynamite, the amazing Mr. Please Please himself, the star of the show, James Brown and the Famous Flame. You know I feel all right. You know I feel all right, children. I feel all right. James Brown went on to record many of his most popular and enduring singles during the mid-60s, including I Got You, Papa's got a brand new bag, and it's a man's, man's, man's world. With its unique rhythmic quality, he achieved all of it by essentially reducing his band to one giant percussive instrument. Papa's got a brand new bag is considered the first of a new genre called funk, an offshoot of soul and a precursor of hip-hop. In the mid-60s, Brown also began devoting more and more energy to social causes. In 1966, he recorded Don't Be a Dropout, an impassioned plea to the black community to place more focus on education. Here, James Brown talks about education in his own community. The education uh, is one thing everybody needs. We must admit that there are certain people, ethnic people around the world, who are more or less fortunate and do... uh, Greed, they were deprived of uh, getting a lot of things. Uh, but uh, I helped the black more and deal with the black because I was closer to that environment. That's my environment. And 
I felt there was a reason for me to do it. Very proud. I feel that a man shouldn't be deprived because of the color of his skin. Uh, uh, he should be judged by the contents of his character and his knowledge. And uh, if they haven't had chance, much chance and much opportunity to get an education, it's hard to deal with it. So I felt it was my, my privilege and my honor, and, and, and it was my job and my duty. And I'm very proud. And uh, regardless of what your color is, just be proud and do what you have to do. But it's not about color. It's neither black or white. It's what's right. It's neither white or black. It's the fact. You got to have it together. Now a good friend of mine sat with me and he cried. He told me a story I know he hadn't lied. He said he went for a job and this a man said, Without an education, you might as well be dead Now don't get me wrong, he said it's not who you are Cause people come to me from a near and far But I do just work and I follow the rules I didn't have an education, so I had to go back to school My friend told all his buddies that he loved so well And all their personal troubles, I will not tell Now those guys didn't seem good, and they didn't seem bad They didn't seem so happy, and I know they weren't sad But the point is it, that they follow the rules They got an education, and they all finished school Now underneath his chill, I could see the truth back When he dropped out of school, he never, never went back They got, they got to listen now, now On April 5th, 1968, the day after Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination, with riots raging across the country, Brown gave a rare televised live concert in Boston in an attempt to prevent rioting there. His effort succeeded. Young Bostonians stayed home to watch the concert on TV, and the city largely avoided violence. In 1979, an optimistic Brown said that racial tension was more of an economic issue and that young people have erased the issue. Brown goes on to describe money as the root of all evil. The race problem has wound up being an economical problem. I think it was used for advantages in the hearts of people. The young kids today don't have time for that job. That's that's stupid. And they realize it and they they go out and they're more bold and, and more aggressive and they say, hey... I'm going to love the cat if he's together. Uh, don't love me because I'm black or white. Love me because I'm right and because I got soul. The young kids today have erased that problem. Uh, naturally, uh, America had a tremendous chance. Any Western country had a chance, like Europe at one point, and it moved on to America. It had a great opportunity. Canada, all of them had a great opportunity. But I think it was so much wealth and money is the root of all evil. Uh, like I said, money won't change you. And uh, sometimes people forgot that they thought if they had money, they could do anything. And uh, kind of made a mistake. I believe the country will get itself together uh, later on. The, the economical problem is, is put everybody kind of in their place. 
And God bless America, God bless the world, God bless every race and every nationality. A slightly different tone, a slightly more mature man. The career started to wane in the 70s, but in the 80s, something special happened. The Blues Brothers, Living in America, which featured prominently in Rocky IV. And then we get a context. We start to really look back at this man, his talent. And here is James talking about how his music, in the end, was really 20 years ahead of its time. Things like Sex Machine and uh, Hot Pants... uh... It's 20 years ahead of their time. So what it is, the people are trying to find out what we're doing. And that's been why my band, when they play people, they, they can't get the people off the, to sit down because the things that we do, you know, it's so different, you know, because they're unwritten stuff. See, we changed the musical structure in 1965 with Papa's Got a Brand New Bag because music was written on two and four and on the up-tempo. And now we play it on the downbeats, which is totally different. Want to go out? with a man's 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 world and take a listen to what in the end James was. He was a great dancer. He was a heck of a showman. But what a pure singer. What a singer. And so we leave you with this on James Brown's day of birth in this day in history. Habib, this is Our American Stories. Again, the life of James Brown, born on this day in history. Stories, and we're fortunate to be joined by Arthur Brooks, the president of the American Enterprise Institute. And I know you're wondering about this bumpin' music. Uh, it's not our ordinary bumpin' music, but it's, uh, well, why should we explain? Uh, this is how Arthur Brooks led off a recent column in the New York Times about mobility and about, in the end, I think, freedom and the human heart. Uh, Arthur, a pleasure to have you on our show. Hey, Lee, how are you? It's great to talk to you. Same here. Now, Arthur, that song, everybody's listening to it. Tell people about what they were just listening to. Well, that's a song about the open road, isn't it? It's a song about uh, adventure and uh, the way your life's supposed to be. You know, it's a, it's a 
crazy thing. You know, when you look back and how people talked uh, as recently as 100 years ago, even less, about the American spirit. And if you look back and uh, no doubt in how your own ancestors talked about the adventure in their lives, and I was talked about doing new things and going new places and, and looking for the opportunity in their lives. You know, I, I look back over the past couple hundred years in my own family, and, you know, they moved every generation west, you know, one step ahead of the law or looking for a new job or something. Yep. And, you know, it was the open road is the sense of rebuilding your life on the basis of opportunity and adventure. And you know, that's what, it's a funny song. It's the funniest bump in music I've heard in a long time. But, man, it kind of captures it, doesn't it? It does. And, you know, when you think about this mobility, I mean, in the end, people moved here from far away to begin with. So, I mean, in the end, in the, end the beginning of every American life started with moving to begin with. Yeah, for sure. Look, I mean, it's, uh, I, I'm going to go, I'm going to say, you're, I mean, you're Lebanese, right? Yep. And you're, you're grand, probably your granddad or maybe your dad. My granddad. My granddad. Yeah. Yep. And, you know, fantastic. There's so many good people. This is a country of, and interesting to, to think about it this way, you know, no, nobody came here rich. I'm, I'm going to say that your grandfather wasn't a rich guy. <laughs> You're right. Probably like my great-grandparents, basically ambitious riffraff. That's who we are yep. as a country, right? And, you know, some, some listeners are going, well, actually, my family wasn't ambitious. <laughs> you <know? laughs> but, you know, this is, the country is not made up of dukes and earls and nobility and gentry. No, it's made up of people who basically came from someplace else where they couldn't make it and said, I'm going to, my life is a startup. I'm going to be an entrepreneur with my own life, basically. You know, that's the American spirit. That's what we need. Dig into your grandfather's life, because I love asking people about their parents and their parents' parents. Uh, it's just, it's almost how I start every interview. I also ask people about their first job as well, Arthur. But tell me about your granddad and where he grew up and where he moved around. My grandparents uh, were from South Dakota, and their, their parents were immigrants from Denmark. Uh, and you know, recently I was making a movie in Denmark, and you know, part of the reason I went there is it was a movie about happiness. And, 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 I, and I went to the place where my great-grandparents immigrated away from, and, and I wanted to know. I mean, everybody says the Danish people are the happiest people in the world, so why would my great-grandparents leave? And the answer is because they wanted more than they could get from that culture. They wanted to, they left because they had a first-grade education, and they were the wrong religion, and they were poor, and they were orphans. And I said, huh, I've heard about this place called America, South Dakota. I bet we could start our own farm, and they did. They went to South Dakota. They were, they had nothing. They had 12 kids. They wound up, uh, you know, in the first-grade education, their kids graduated from high school. Their grandkids went to college, and great-grandkid is president of the American Enterprise Institute. It's crazy. It's, it is indeed crazy. And, you know, that song we talked about was Walt Whitman's Song of the, of the Open Road. And, Arthur, in this column you wrote, and I'm going to quote, I inherited my grandfather's wanderlust, albeit in a strain that's more Kuriak than Whitman. Who's Jack Kuriak, for folks who don't know? And tell us about your wanderlust. Well, Jack Kuriak was writing in the 1960s, and he was, uh, he's kind of a beat writer. Um, and he's not very popular among conservatives like me, simply because he was so uh, in part of the drug culture, etc. But the thing that's attractive about him is that he was going from place to place talking about new adventures in his own life. Walt Whitman did the same thing 100 years before, a lot more, with a lot better values, I have to say. And, you know, this has been the kind of the soundtrack of American life forever. You asked about that grandfather. That was actually on the other side. This is a guy who, you know, he, he his family had been in the United States for a couple hundred years 
years at this point. But, you know, he always had this itch. So he started off, uh, he decided he was going to start a, a missionary school in the Navajo Nation in New Mexico. Started the Methodist Mission School, and then picked up and went to Wheaton College, where he wound up being the dean of students. And then he was, you know, gave up everything and just traveled around the United States with a trailer uh, as, a, as a traveling missionary, uh, effectively. And, you know, that's really the American spirit. It's really good stuff. It is Jack Kerouac or Walt Whitman, but all in the, the Christian mood. It's good stuff. It is. And, you know, we just did an hour on Henry Ford, and it's particularly the early part of his life struck us because he just hated the farming life. His father insisted he stay on the farm. Henry had other ideas. And indeed, a large part of it, it turns out, why he did what he did is he wanted more people to be able to escape the farm. And what more represents that ability to, to escape uh, a life that you once knew than the car itself, Arthur? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's absolutely right. You know, when people are, it's funny, I talk to people all the time who are regretting cars, regretting fossil fuels. You know, people who talk about the oil industry who are somehow evil. Man, they, these guys, they produce liquid freedom. I know. You know nobody can, can, can basically say, I'm sorry, you live in Oklahoma, you can go to Texas. No, no, no. Gas up your car and go. You know, there's a lot of good things, by the way, that the country did, even the government did, building the interstate highway system. Why was that? To make people more free. The job of the government should always be not to make people less free, but to make people more free. And that was a good example of how we were actually able to do it. And this is true, but it actually requires something else, Lee. It requires a culture and a mentality and a morality written on the heart of the American to want to do this. <laughs> you know, this is really what kind of worries me, what I've been writing about lately, is we can celebrate the open road. We can celebrate my granddad with his trailer and, and Walt Whitman and the stuff that we're talking about here. But if we don't have Americans who really want to avail themselves of this kind of freedom, who say things are not right, I can't find a job. I'm going to go in search of my earned success. If we don't have Americans who are willing to do that, then it really doesn't matter how much freedom there is, is it? Doesn't no, it? it's so true. We talked to a young girl earlier, Arthur, named Jane Johnson, and she's a young girl in, uh, from the west side of Chicago, has a tough life, tough neighborhood, uh, but she went ahead and got herself a technical degree, and the day she graduated, a guy who owned a machine shop saw something in this girl and said, hey, I want to hire you. And he always does this, by the way. He goes to that graduation ceremony and picks at least one or two kids from the tough side of the tracks and gives them jobs. He has 80 employees now, and he employs a bunch of those people 20 years after having started this ritual. I asked Jane, have you told some of your friends in the West Side about this program, which, by the way, is free. It's pro bono through a church. And she said, I can't get any takers, but that's not going to stop me. And so it gets to your point, Arthur, right there in the neighborhood. They don't even have to move. They just have to walk a few blocks. And yet yeah. there's something mapped on their human heart. And I think it has a lot to do with the government programs that tells them not to make that move for themselves. Yeah. You know, it actually has been very tough. Uh, let's make no mistake about it. Over the past few decades, and, and particularly since the end of the Great Recession, there, there is less opportunity out there than there was before. But if you go back 100 years, there were times of a real lack of opportunity. And, and there was nothing that people could do except pick up and move if they actually needed to find some way to support themselves and support their families. Now, I want, given the fact that the country is much richer, to be able to help people so they don't fall too far. But I don't want to ruin this. I don't want to ruin this American spirit. I want people to 
to get up and move. I'm trying to find some sort of happy medium here, Lee. And, and you know, I, I'm looking around today, and, and I see some things I don't like. You know, if, if you look at the, the percentage of men um, age 20 to 64, which is working age, who are not institutionalized, meaning they're not in prison and they're not in the military, the percentage of those guys that are idle, not even in the workforce, has gone from 7% when you and I were kids, Lee, to 17% today. Basically, it's, you know, we're talking doubling and tripling the number of guys, you know, practically one in five men in America today is sitting out, the wor- sitting out of the workforce, and we can't sustain that. That really changes our country. No, it does, and it changes our culture as well. And again, it changes the hearts of these men and women who sit out. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. And when we come back, Arthur Brooks, president of the American Enterprise Institute, writing about an important subject on this show, mobility. And in the end, freedom. More after these messages. And this is Our American Stories, and we're joined by Arthur Brooks, president of the American Enterprise Institute. His column in the New York Times, How to Get America Moving Again, uh, represented a, a story and a continuing story that Arthur and his team over there are telling again and again. And we want to join him in, in pursuing that storytelling. Arthur, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Lee. Wonderful to be with you and, and all your listeners. And thank you for your wonderful show. I mean, what a breath of fresh air in America today. I mean, you're not complaining. You're talking about solutions. You're celebrating what a great country this is. You remind us all that America is a gift to the world, and each one of us can be a gift to our nation. You're really doing a blessing here. Well, I appreciate it. You know, Arthur, the other day we were celebrating uh, Frank Capper's life, and I, I called up the American Film Institute. A friend of mine who uh, works there had said Capper gave a remarkable speech in 1981 when he was given this Lifetime Achievement Award. Bob Hope's in the front row. Betty Davis is in the front room and in the front of the room, and he starts to tell the story of his grandfather and his father and coming to the United States and pointing at the Statue of Liberty and what it meant to him and getting to Los Angeles and his father literally kissing the ground. And then he holds up the award to heaven. He's named all of the dead relatives in Italian. And then he says, for you, for coming here, for coming to America, I kiss the ground. And, wow. and, and, and I, I just think there, not enough of us have that space of gratitude, Arthur, in our hearts and in our lives right now. It's true. It's true. And, and look, I'm, I'm, I'm very sympathetic to the people who don't feel that the opportunity is as abundant as it used to be. And, you know, I go to communities all the time in my work. I mean, I'm traveling constantly in places that are actually pretty hard up. Um, but as, as a country, we have to be real warriors for opportunity and the opportunity culture. But let's still remember, let's still let's maintain the gratitude for, for what this country has represented for each of us and, and what it can be in the future. And let's fight together to find these solutions. You bet. And a lot of what we talk about here on this show when it comes to mobility are the things holding people back. So let's talk about our lack of mobility uh, as it relates to our, ec- our economic funk and public policy, Arthur. Talk about the connection and the nexus between these things. Well, 
people often wonder uh, about mobility, and, and when, when we talk about mobility, we're usually talking about socioeconomic mobility, climbing, your kids doing better than you, you doing better this year than last year. But what really one of the things that's interesting to note is geographic mobility, moving around, which is kind of a, this is the theme that we've been talking about over the last few minutes here. And, and here's a weird fact, Lee. People are less geographically mobile than they've ever been in American life. So if you go back to about 1960, you find that one in five families moved in any given year in your neighborhood. So you found that people always moved in and moved out, moved in and moved out. Mobility, moving from state to state, families, that's been cut by 50% since you and I were kids. People are half as likely to move now as they were since the early 60s. Now, why? You know, what would lead to this? And there are a whole bunch of explanations for it. Number one is that you know, people who get assistance from the state, it's not geographically portable. So, you know, if you're getting food stamps one place, it's hard to sign up in, in a new jurisdiction. If you're getting state benefits in one place, you don't get them in another place, so people stay there. Another is that people just don't have skills that are very portable anymore. <clears throat> when I was a kid, a lot more people had blue-collar skills than they have today. And so there are tons of blue-collar jobs that are unfilled because they can't find people with those skills and really high rates of unemployment for people who who don't have these skills anymore. Today, just very day, there are 300,000 unfilled skilled welding jobs in America. This is the same time that you find African-American unemployment among men under 30 is over 30%. You know, what's wrong here where people of the skills and the abilities are not matching each other, and this is keeping people stuck both socioeconomically and even geographically. You know, we were talking about two months ago to a young man named Anthony Solis, whose picture was on the cover of the personal journal holding a welding torch. And I said, get that guy on the air. And he talked about this very thing, Arthur. And if it hadn't been for a, a day he was trying to cheat from high school and go to this shipyard to watch guys do what they were doing. And he, all he said to me is, the second I saw those guys playing with fire, I knew that's what I wanted to do the rest of my life. And he can write his ticket, Arthur. I mean, he has mobility now. He had job offers from several places. It gets right to your point. And Anthony Solis, second-generation immigrant from Mexico, came from a tough barrio in a tough neighborhood, could never afford college, and he's making $90,000 a year, Arthur. And it's not the money. It's what it represents for this young guy. And it's his ability to do what he wants to do with his life. Absolutely. And, and a guy who's got these skills, which are super in demand today, um, he's going to move to find the best paying job. He's going to move his family when it's re- it required. You can't stay in your local community if you want to work on an oil pipeline, if you want to weld on an oil pipeline. And that's what gets people up and that's what gets, pe- gets people moving is because somebody says, I need you here. And you know, this gets to a broader point. In the American economy today, the problem that we have, you can say it's, you know, you see people complaining about immigrants and you see people complaining about trade and all that stuff. The real problem is that too many people in America don't feel that they're necessary anymore. They don't feel they're needed. Your friend Anthony Solis, he went from being basically not needed by the economy to being needed by the economy. That's right. We got to be neededly. Each one of us needs to be needed. And, and our welfare policy has been just crazy. We've gone from needing people when my parents were kids to helping people. And look, I want to help people. I'm a Christian. I want to help people all day long. But you know what? I don't help people when I make them unnecessary. And that's effectively what's happened. There's a really weird fact. There's only one group of 
poor people in America today that we don't help, but that we do need. And that's illegal immigrants who are doing work in things like agriculture. We should learn something from that. These are people that they don't have the best life, and we need to regularize them. And it's not right that we have this illegal immigration problem, but let's take a lesson. These are people that we're not helping, but that we do need. What can we do for legal immigrants? What can we do for people who are poor? What can we do to need them more and so we can support them and make them dependent less? You know, Arthur, we just uh, spent an hour on Alexander Solzhenitsyn's remarkable speech at Harvard in 1978. And, you know, he, he was, I think, uh, well, I think everyone was expecting for him some speech about the perils of communism and socialism. But he also talked about the perils of capitalism in this speech, which is what made it so interesting. And he talked about materialism itself and the problems of materialism. And I think too often people who believe in free enterprise don't get at that discussion and don't talk directly to the people about things like how to be needed and, and what to do about that. And we don't start with that individual story, Arthur. It seems to me we're always starting from some macroeconomic position. Uh, talk about that, if you could. Well, you know, it's, it's important for all of us who are free enterprise advocates. I'm, I'm a political conservative. I have been for a long time, and, and I love the free enterprise system. But it's easy to forget the why of the free enterprise system. The reason I got into the movement in the first place, and I come from a liberal background in Seattle, Washington. You know, I didn't grow up with this, and nobody was in business. Nobody. I came to this because, believe it or not, poverty is the thing I care about the most. And when I started studying, I didn't go to college until I was in my late 20s. I got my bachelor's degree when I was 30. You know, so I have a very, a very strange story for somebody who later became a college professor. And, and when I was studying in my late 20s, I started studying economics for the first time, and it turned me into a political conservative because I found the solution to pulling people out of poverty through opportunity, which was free enterprise. But this is the key thing for us to remember. Free enterprise is the only system that can create a ton of billionaires, but I don't care. I don't care about creating billionaires. I want people to be able to earn their success and live lives of dignity. And the free enterprise system only matters because it, it understands, it helps us to understand and effectuate dignity, radical equality of dignity for people from all over the world and all races and all religions, doesn't matter, and potential to give them real, a real future. That's what matters. If we forget that, we become materialists. If we forget that capitalism wipes out poverty, then we, we're doing it wrong. Exactly right. And I think that was the, the, the rub there, that a lot, of, a lot of capitalists were disappointed in Solzhenitsyn's speech. I was, it changed my heart and my life hearing and, and hearing of that speech. And in my first uh, election ever, I voted for Reagan, not because of Reagan, but because of Solzhenitsyn. And that may sound crazy, but uh, that's how it actually happened in my life. That's beautiful. I love that. Uh, and, and, and tell me this, Arthur. And by the way, it, it shows the ability, because I shared that all around my college, Fairleigh Dickens University. I even printed it in the gauntlet. I was editor-in-chief. And I can't tell you how many people were nodding, because it was talking about the human heart. Look, with the socialists and materialists and capitalists and materialists, how, where does the individual fit in? Where does his God, where does his meaning? And Arthur, you know, what I love about your work is you've been writing about this meeting and being needed uh, for a very long time. What are the public policies solutions for folks who are listening. What are some answers? What do you do to make people more needed? Well, to begin with, you have to have a focus on the individual. It's not the idea of the economy. It's what are we actually doing to lift up the individual? Socialism, you know, there's the old, there's the old uh, idea that social, a socialist is a man who loves humanity, but only in groups of one million and above. Right. 
basically. Well, you know, capitalism can be that way, too. It kind of falls in love with an idea. To make people needed means, okay, how is the system actually reaching out to make each individual person necessary? Number one, we've got to have an economy that stops getting in the way of people's earned success. You know, when we talk about taxes, taxes should really be all about creating more opportunity and not getting in the way of opportunity. Regulation, same deal. Entitlement, same deal. That's how we should be thinking about it. Second is we need an education system where we have choice and we have innovation, but most importantly, where we have vocational skills that we're working into our education system so that people can actually match their skills with their needs. And third, we've got to talk about culture. Right now, we have a culture where we just, we simply, you know, we leave people behind. We have a culture where we say, look, I'm taking care of poor people. I got food stamps. Isn't that enough? No, answer, not enough. We need a culture that sees people as necessary. Well, Arthur, thanks for your work. And we want to keep having you on to talk about these matters and, and particularly about happiness. Uh, thanks for joining us, Arthur, as always, and look forward to more work down the road. Thank you, Lee. Thanks for a great show. You bet. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And that was Arthur Brooks, the president of the American Enterprise Institute, talking about the things we care about most, human beings, their stories, their lives, and all of our search for meaning. More after these messages. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and now it's time for our weekly series, Random Acts of Kindness. And if you have a great story of someone doing a random act of kindness for you, visit randomactsofkindness.org and post it there, and make sure to check out some of the terrific stories there. You'll be inspired, and it's a great character-building resource for families. And this week, we bring you a story of a seven-year-old in Toledo, Ohio, named Audriana Reynolds. We read about at LifeZet.com. Adriana was bullied at school for being somewhat of a tomboy, which is just like my little girl, Reagan, 11 years old, and the things she loves to do are what only boys are supposed to love to do. And I love this country now because girls do whatever they want, and that's that, and they're going to have their way. Well, you won't believe this story, and we're lucky to have Adriana and her mother, Alexandria, on with us now. Adriana... Uh, before we start and before we tell your story, you're seven years old. What's your idea of fun? You have a day off. It's the summer. How do you kill some time? Talk to us about what's fun in your life. Uh, riding my dirt bike and uh, holding my turtle. <laughs> that sounds like a day. My little girl loves riding her ATV and catching frogs. So you two have a lot in common. Tell us, Adriana, what was going on at school? Tell us what, what was happening at school to you with the, with the bullying. Uh, they were touching me, hitting me, and calling names. And what were they calling you names about, Adriana? What, were, what, were they, what, what kind of names were they calling you, and why do you think they were doing that? Uh, that that I was uh, that I was a boy and ugly. And was this mostly boys? Do, was this mostly boys, uh, Adriana? Was this girls? 
Or is this just everybody? Yeah, really, really. And, you know, just so the audience knows, Adriana's hair is short because in April she had donated the bulk of it to Wigs for Kids, an organization that provides wigs for children who need them. And most ordinarily that's for young kids who've suffered from cancer and have lost their hair. It's a beautiful thing to do and a, and a courageous thing to do. Alexandria, how did this affect your daughter and you too? And uh, talk about what happened next. Um, well, she would come home from school crying and just very upset. And, um, you know, she didn't really understand why kids were doing what they were doing and saying what they were saying about her. And it was just really hard to watch your child be, you know, so upset over just mean stuff that kids say and putting their hands on her and stuff to that effect. Um so I, it all originally started as I was trying to get people to send Adriana birthday cards in the mail for her birthday to show her that there was plenty of nice people in the world and not everybody was mean. Um, and one of the ladies in one of my coloring groups online, um, she actually knows the Punisher's Motorcycle Club, and she actually hooked us up with um, Bush. And um, a pretty cool relationship just kind of started from there. Um, they made her a vest and, um, accepted her in as part of the club. And, um, they took her for a ride on the back of the motorcycle to school and all kinds of cool stuff. And the Punishers is, it's, it's a, sort of like a law enforcement motorcycle club in Toledo. Is, is that what, that's what I thought. And, and, and we have, uh, Daniel on with us too, Daniel Bushy. And, and we're fortunate, Daniel, to have you here too. Tell us about that motorcycle club of yours and what you did for this family and this young lady. And I'm going to call her a young lady because that's what she is and why you did it. We, uh, we basically, we, we help anybody we can um, anytime our resources allow. Um, we're very family-oriented. Uh, we do special events. We just got done with a uh, cancer run where we raise money for the Nightingale Harvest Ministries. Um, so stuff like that. And all of our chapters do that. You know, we focus on our communities uh, the best we can. And, you know, there's there's always people that need help. You know, it's just you know getting to the ones we can. And so focused on uh, friendship and family. That's great. And 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 this is a what, what what are the age groups of the folks in this motorcycle club and what walks of life do they come from, Daniel? Um, every walk. My charter has uh, active police, uh, active and retired military. Um, I've got EMTs, firefighters, uh, just anything you can think of. You know, it's we bring people in and they have to hang out with us for a while. You know, to make sure they're going to be a good fit, and make sure we're all on the same page. That's great. That's great. And so, what did you do uh, for this young lady in particular? What did you do for Adriana to help her with his bullying, help her with her self-esteem, her confidence, all of it? When, uh, just like she said. They, Angie reached out to us and said, I know somebody in my coloring group that her daughter's being picked on, and they want to know if you guys would send her a birthday card. And uh, I got a hold of her mom, and I said, uh, you know, what's going on? And she told us, she said, if you guys send a birthday card, it'd be great. I just wanted to know there's still nice people out there. And I, I said, we can, we can do better than a birthday card. So uh, about eight or ten of us got together, rode out to Peanut's grandma's house, and uh, we hung out with her for about 45 minutes or an hour. And, you know, I talked to her. I had been bullied when I was, when I was younger. I used to be really small. And, uh, you know, I got bullied a lot when I was a kid, too. 
Um, somebody set my hair on fire. Um, I had a blade pulled on me, put to my neck. Um, you know, I was just off the top of my head. So I understood, and I understand what she was going through at the time. Um, and I told her, you know, it's it's not her fault. It's, you know, when people do that, it's usually because they have self-esteem issues. They feel bad about themselves, or they're having an issue at home. And it's not to be mean against anybody. It's just the way it is. You know, and I told her this. Them picking on her has nothing to do with her, that she's a good person. And that's beautiful. And so you took her on a, you took her on a ride to school is what you did. Yeah, we uh, we came out to her house, picked her up. Uh, me and my VP blocked some traffic on the way over to make sure we could get there in one piece and uh, brought her out to the school. She's yeah. seen the kids as they were showing up to school. They're all wide-eyed and looking over at us. And like eight bikers standing outside of the school. It was fun, though. She had a blast. Well, and you were helping out a young lady with a common love for bikes. Uh, Audriana, can you tell us about your first real ride on a real motorcycle and what it meant to you? Uh, It was fun, and I really liked it. Well, hopefully you'll... <laughs> that's great and hopefully you have a lot have a lot more it sounds like you have some new friends alexandra after you guys have exp- after you guys have expanded your family to include the punishers have you noticed any changes in your little girl oh definitely she has a smile on her face all the time whenever she talks about them she just lights up and she loves telling everybody that she's part of the Punisher's Motorcycle Club, and that she has a whole new family of uncles, and it just brought her a lot more confidence and happiness back into her, and it's so wonderful to see. That's beautiful. And, Daniel, you got about 30 seconds. A final thought from you before we close. Um, just anybody that's listening, you know, bullying is not okay. It affects kids badly. You know, it, it brings them down inside, and it's a lifetime effect. There's no reason for it. Um, you know, just accept each other how you are. You know, everybody's different. And that's what makes the world great. Well, Daniel, Adriana, Alexandria, thank you, all three of you, but particularly you, Daniel. Uh, thank you for reaching out. These random acts of kindness, these things we do for one another, and I call them little acts of love because that's what they are, and we all need them. And just thanks for what you did. And, Adriana, you keep riding, okay, sweetheart? You keep riding. This is Lee Habib. Thank you all for joining us. And this is Our American Stories, Our Random Acts of Kindness. What a great story. What a great country. And it's so true. Bullying, it's it's a part of life, but it can be fought back. And this is the best way to fight back with really, really random and radical acts of kindness. More after these messages with Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and it's time for our This Day in Music History. Take it away, Jesse. Born on this day in music history, 1903, the one and only Bing Crosby, who recorded an estimated 2,600 songs in his lifetime, he died of a heart attack on a golf course in Madrid, Spain, on October 14th of 1977. Beautiful dreamer, wake unto me. Starlight and dewdrops are waiting for thee. And Bing Crosby wasn't just any old amateur player. He was serious about his game. In the late 1940s, he signed a contract with ABC to do a weekly radio variety show, but he made a seemingly strange request that the show be taped instead of live. This stipulation was a first for broadcast radio, but it enabled Crosby to spend more time on the golf course. Also born on this day in music history in 1919, U.S. folk singer Pete Seeger. To everything, turn, turn, turn. A couple of the popular songs that he wrote were If I Had a Hammer for Peter, Paul, and Mary and Turn, Turn, Turn for the Birds. The lyrics for Turn, 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 except for the title, which is repeated throughout the song, and the final two lines are adapted word for word from the English version of the first eight verses of the third chapter of the biblical book of Ecclesiastes. Pete Seeger died at the age of 94 at a New York hospital after a short illness in January of 2014. And another big born on this day in music history, 1933, is James Brown. He demanded extreme discipline from his musicians and dancers and had the practice of assessing fines on members of his band who broke his rules, such as wearing unshined shoes, dancing out of sync, or showing up late on stage. At the end of the 1960s, James Brown owned a publishing company, three radio stations, and a Learjet. Brown died in December of 2006 at the age of 73. And this day in music history, 1968, the Jimi Hendrix Experience recorded Voodoo Child. I'm a voodoo child, Lord, I'm a voodoo child. It was featured on the Electric Ladyland double album and became a UK number one single in November of 1970, just two months after the guitarist's death. Hendrix's solo on the track was named the 11th greatest solo of all time in Guitar World's 100 Greatest Guitar Solos. Voodoo Child is based on earlier blues songs and became the basis for Voodoo Child's Slight Return, recorded by The Experience the next day in one of Hendrix's best-known songs. It evolved originally from Catfish Blues, a song which Hendrix performed regularly during 67 and 68. It was an homage to Muddy Waters, made up of a medley of verses based on Waters' songs. And speaking of Jimi Hendrix, one year later, this day in music history, 1969, at Toronto International Airport, Jimi was arrested for possession of hashish and heroin when he crossed the Canadian border for a concert in Toronto. The night I was born, he claimed the drugs weren't his. Oldest line in the book, right? He got out on $10,000 bail and was acquitted that same year in December. 
And this day in music history in 1980, Bob Seger and the Silver Bullet Band started a six-week run at number one on the U.S. album chart with Against the Wind. Seems like yesterday But it was long ago Jane, it was lovely, she was a queen of my night There in the darkness with the radio playing low end And the secrets that we share Mountains that we move Caught like a wildfire out of control Till there was nothing left to burn And nothing left to prove And I remember what she said to me How she swore that it never would end I remember how she held me Oh, so tight Wish I didn't know now Glenn Fry from the Eagles sang background vocals, and Bob Seger won the 1980 Best Rock Performance Grammy Award for this song. And in 1986, Robert Palmer went to number one on the U.S. singles chart with Addicted to Love. It made number five in the U.K. Palmer wanted the song to be a duet with Shaka Khan and recorded it with her. Shaka Khan's a girl? I thought Chaka Khan was a guy, because in that one song, it, it's some guy saying Chaka Khan over and over again. Remember Chaka, that? Chaka, Chaka, Chaka Khan. Chaka, <laughs> Chaka Khan. Khan is a girl? Her label, Warner Brothers Records, would not allow her voice to be used on the record, so Palmer had to erase her part and re-record her high notes before releasing it. Chaka Khan did appear on Steve Winwood's Higher Love, which beat out this song for the 1987 Record of the Year Grammy. Robert Palmer told Q Magazine in 1988 that the song all started with a guitar riff that came to him in a dream. And this day in music history, 1997, the notorious B.I.G. started a three-week run at number one on the U.S. singles chart with his posthumous hit, Hypnotize. A number 10 hit in the U.K., the rapper was gunned down and killed on March 9th, 1997. It was ranked at number 30 in Rolling Stone's 50 Greatest Rap Songs of All Time in Hip-Hop History. P. Diddy, known then as Puff Daddy, produced Hypnotized and sampled the beat from Herb Albert's 1979 instrumental hit called Rise. And that's this day in music history. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. This is a tasty burger. Mm. Hamburgers. Mm. Cornerstone of any nutritious purpose. I do love the taste of a good burger. This is a tasty burger. I do love the taste of a good burger. Burgers. The 
This is Our American Stories, and today we have one of our favorite regular features with marriage coach Deb Wolniak. And this week, she brings us the story of Ron and Kathy, who've been married for 30 years. And Ron was wrongfully imprisoned for 15 of them. This is our Marriage on the Mind segment. Deb takes us back to the beginning of Ron and Kathy's story. How did you guys meet? Um, Kathy and I, I'll, I'll start there, honey. Yeah. I was five years old, and, and Kathy fell in love with me. That's not at true. At the age of four. <laughs> <laughs> we did meet. We were neighbors, so we did meet when we were four and five, but I certainly did not fall in love with him and certainly did not like him. Um, so we we had met as neighbors and then through school uh, knew each other, and then it really wasn't until after high school we we began dating. So uh, my role, I was actually in my own mind, I was a rock star, and and, and Kathy was one of my group. No, I was not. <laughs> <laughs> that is so cute. Well, with with some of life's events, um, were you then married right away, or how did you handle your dating relationship and transition into marriage? Oh yeah, that's a that's a loaded question. At that point in our lives, we just really were at a place of you know. Um, believing the lie that you can, you know, have fun, do whatever you want to do, and then at some point in the future you can make a decision to be responsible be and grown up. And, yeah, and be grown ups, and that, you know, whatever happened before that doesn't count or you know isn't going to affect that. So when we first got together, uh, we were living together, and then I got pregnant, and then we got married, um, and then we had our first son, and then uh, a year and a half later we had our second son. So in the midst of all of that, uh, we had a, a lot of crazy stuff happening, a lot of parties um, going on, lots of drinking. Just, and a really, just really living a, a, a life of, with no understanding of what it means to. And when there's a thing that uh, I'd say, you know, I was a grown man. You know, I was my age-wise, that made me a grown man, but I was a grown man with little boy issues. Mm-hmm. And trying, instead of a building a house, we were playing house. This hard-partying couple soon discovered that life... Is not all fun and games. When we were married just for five years, Ron ended up going to prison for a crime he did not commit. And we had two little boys, and it just it really started our journey into really understanding that there are children and families that are almost invisible in society and that much of society really deems and sees as disposable. And so that really ignited a passion in us to really, first of all, want to rescue our own family and then want to rescue um, every family coming behind us. Kathy, you guys, you walked out of court as a single mom as your husband went into prison. What were you thinking? Oh, my goodness. I was completely stunned because it was not at all what I expected. I had expected to be going home with Ron and, and actually, you know, um, suing people for, for putting us in this situation and, and you know, just I, it was completely the opposite of what I had anticipated. And uh, the, the real devastation of having to go home and explain to my two little boys why Daddy wasn't coming home that day and why I didn't know when Daddy might be coming home. Finding myself standing there all by myself, everybody else has gone home, and I'm standing at the window looking out the window watching Ron be put in the sheriff's car and mm. thinking, oh, my gosh, now what? And just mm. not having any answers in that moment. Yeah. You know, though I was innocent when I was convicted of, I found myself in a place where I couldn't be taken at my word. I, mm-hmm. and, but finding myself in the penitentiary and really, and the, the truth is, day one of, of incarceration, I turned my life over to Christ. And 
and never looking back and really understanding the reality that I had created for my family because of the choices and poor choices that I was making led up to where uh, I couldn't be taken at my word where um, I had to either uh, wake up or, or or lose everything. When I went to go see him and he had told me, you know, that he was feeling freer than he ever had, and here he is in jail. It was our first visit. And I was like, oh, man, my husband's had a nervous breakdown. And uh, just really, <laughs> really thinking, I asked him, I said, so is there a resident psychiatrist here? Because, my dear, you are not free. You are behind bars. And he says, no, no, you don't understand the freedom that I have in, um, in where I am in accepting God. Even though Ron was the one behind bars, Kathy felt just as isolated. She was ostracized by friends and felt cast away. But they couldn't spend too much time feeling sorry for themselves. They had to move forward. When you have a marriage that goes through 15 years of incarceration, you had some sort of serious commitment because I think a lot of people would say, that's it, I'm done, goodbye, and (laughs) find a new life. Can you point to something directly that prevented you from doing that? Yeah, I, Ron, if I, can, if I can go first. For me, it was, you know, a commitment is a commitment. And, and having Ron in prison was not, um, it was not an easy journey, but it was, um, it was still a beautiful journey because what happened was we really learned what commitment meant. We meant uh, what we said when we said for better or for worse. And we didn't put our relationship up on a shelf and say, okay, well, when you get home, we're going to work on our relationship. And that might be, you know, 10, 15, 20, 25 years. Instead, we were very determined and very deliberate in investing in our relationship and ensuring that we maintained that relationship even through long distance. And that meant, you know, staying connected to what was happening in each other's lives and encouraging each other in whatever way we could. Um, finding ways to be intimate that were not um, sexual because we couldn't have sex. So it was uh, finding ways to connect on a, on a, on a mental, emotional um, friendship level mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. really took us through um, those 15 years and caused us to come out stronger. On my end, I, I'll say this, because every man's fear, when they go into a penitentiary and they have a, a wife, or a, a loved one, a significant other on the outside waiting for them. One of the greatest fears is to get that Dear John letter and to, mm-hmm. and to lose that connection. And so one of the things uh, that I did at the beginning of, of my career, you know, I'm, you know, I'm plea bargaining with Kathy, you know, you know, baby, you, know, you marry me for better for worse. It can't get worse than this. You know, and I'm trying to, you know, still trying to connect that, keep that going still. So I didn't lose it, even, even as far as telling her, you know, God hates divorce, so you can't divorce me. But but it but it wasn't it wasn't what what was feeling the uh, it wasn't closing the deal with Kathy and because I know because I know Kathy had mind battles there's fourteen or twenty five years I have no idea what that looks like she doesn't Kathy's a beautiful twenty five year old young lady she's got two boys we have two sons and, and and we're just like okay so and then and then really one day for me you know I'm like you know what I don't know when I'm going home and and man I remember in a prison visiting room and I was. And I had to find the courage to really step up and tell Kathy, I release you. I release you from this. I really recognized that, that there was a change. There was a kind of a wake-up in Ron's life that he was um, very committed 
to helping our relationship and into not just helping our relationship, but to wanting the absolute best for me. Mm-hmm. And even if that meant that the absolute best for me was to move on uh, without him. And that, I mean, it was really shocking because it was so sincere. I mean, he wasn't playing and trying to, well, let me say this and hopefully that'll make her stay. It was uh, uh, very sincere. And it really, we're saying to him, you know, Ron, uh, we're in this together and we're going to do battle together for our family and we are going to save our marriage and we are going to save our children um, so that our children can be raised in an intact family. And we're not going to become a statistic. And, and I need you all in. Because if you've got one foot thinking that it's better to dissolve our marriage and one foot in, we're not going to make it. And uh, I think really at that moment we both decided, okay, uh, we're locking arms emotionally, mentally, spiritually, and we're going into battle and we're going to come out on the other side, whatever it takes, together. And wow, what a story. And they made me laugh. I mean, they were making all of us laugh here in the studio and smile and that good smile. And it just shows you what you can endure and the power of faith. And I love the line, a commitment is a commitment. And I keep thinking about that great line uh, that, that uh, Bonhoeffer had about marriage. And he had said that in the end, uh, love doesn't save marriage. Marriage saves love. And he's so right. And when we come back, our Marriage on the Mind segment and coach and founder and creator and all-around marriage guru... Deb Wolniak will join us to talk more about Ron and Kathy here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And now it's time for our Faith in Action segment, where we tell stories about what people of faith do in the public square, but stories not told off enough in the public square. This week, it's a story we read in Philanthropy Roundtable's Philanthropy Magazine, a story that inspired us so much, we asked our field correspondent, Stan Dye, to chase it down. Alan Barnhart is the CEO of Barnhart Crane and Rigging, a premier heavy lift and transport company based in Memphis, Tennessee, worth some $250 million. With more than 30 branches and 1,000 expert employees, if you want to move something big, say 19 million pounds of hardware at a nuclear power plant, Barnhart can do the job. But you may be surprised by some things that the Barnhart children have not been able to do, like take trips to Disney World, or buy toys that their family can presumably afford. As Alan says, It has been a great benefit, I think frankly to my children, to not have to grow up as rich kids, and to learn the, um, learn the word no, and learn that they don't always get what they want. That was the theology from the Rolling Stones that I taught them. You don't always get what you want. You know that little song? <laughs> you can't always get what you want. You can't always get what 
you want. And that's not the only surprise. We went to advisors and said, we'd like to give our business away. And they thought that that was uh, improved. <laughs> they thought that was not something that we should do. Whoa, wait a minute. What madness is this? That almost sounds like the setup for a TV show where we say stranger and stranger things to people in suits and see how long they'll go along with it. But actually, Alan's seemingly odd request to give away his whole business is as sincere as it gets. This journey began some decades ago when Alan was in college. My roommate and I, we'd always challenge each other and we started talking about world hunger and specifically about the famines that were going on in Ethiopia at that time. And uh, we started wrestling with it and, and um, how, how can this be, what can we do? And, and started asking ourselves a question of how can we live like we're living, the lifestyle that we have, when brothers and sisters in Christ are starving to death? And we wrestled with that for a few days and decided that we needed to do something. And uh, we had planned to go skiing out in Colorado a few months later. And we decided to take the 350 bucks that we were going to spend to go skiing and send it to World Relief or World Vision, I think it was, to help the situation in Ethiopia. And we instead went to the local lake for spring break. It was probably the only sacrificial gift I've ever made in my life. And I know that my 350 bucks didn't change much about Ethiopia, but it changed me. And it was a, a turning point in my life. After graduation, Alan joined the family business and eventually took the reins along with his brother, Eric a responsibility he took seriously, and in ways that you might not expect. And so I decided that I would study through the Bible and read every verse I could read about, about business and about money and wealth, because that's the field that I was going into. And part of the whole purpose of business is to make money. So what does the Bible say about money? And I went through the whole Bible over about a two-year period, and I'm engineer, so I'm kind of cataloging verses and, and trying to figure out what Scripture is saying and I, and I came away from that study with two primary takeaways. And the first one is that everything that I have and everything that I am has come from God and belongs to God. And I am a steward of it. And my job is, is to figure out what God wants me to do with the things that he's given me. None of it belongs to me. I have no rights. I'm a steward. The second one may surprise you a bit. The second one was... I came away with a fear of wealth, a fear of, of business success. Um, if you start thinking about the scriptures, how many scriptures really would point to that fear? There were many of them. You know, Jesus said, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Why did he say that? He said, he said don't store up for yourself treasures on earth. This was a fear so great that Alan, Eric, and their wives made plans to protect their families. And so we made a decision on the front end before we had any money and before we, when business was just starting. And the, and the decision was this. We're going to set for ourselves a financial finish line, a salary, a middle-class salary that we're going to make. And if God chooses to bless this business beyond what it takes to generate that salary, we're not going to see it as a call to increase our lifestyle. But instead, we're going to see it as an opportunity to take that, that money and use it to fund ministry. And so that was the commitment that we made on the front end. The second thing that we did is we told other people about that commitment. We made the commitment before the Lord, but we also told others. 
including people within our company. And that locked in our decision. It gave us some real accountability. Think about that for a moment. Many folks reflect on wealth, charity, and legacy towards the end of their careers. Here we have a family that set a financial finish line for themselves as they barely left the starting line before their business grew very much at all. But grow it did. So now we, we were ready to start our business. We had set these guidelines in place or these safeguards in place and we started our company. Um, it was very small, again, just uh, 10 guys in Memphis and we didn't know if we would even survive the first year because it was a mom and pop business and mom and pop were leaving. And, uh, and we, but the first year we actually made some money and uh, we were so excited. We were able to, uh, we had $50,000 extra money that we were able to give away. And we got to, we, one of the other things we said on the front end is we, if we do have any money to, to invest, we're going to do it as a group. And so it started out, there were six of us that got together and prayed and said, God, what do you want us to do with this money that you have generated? And we took it and we gave it away. And the next year the company grew some more. And I think we had $150,000. And, and each year the company just continued to grow. And it grew about 25% a year for the next 23 years. For you math guys, that means it was 100 times bigger than it had been. and went from a very small company in Memphis to a company that works all over the U.S. and has about 1,000 employees. And our ability to give greatly ramped up. I mean, we got to the place in the early 2000s where we, were, we, had, a, we had a million dollars a year to invest in the kingdom. And, and we had a much bigger group now trying to help us figure out how to do that and praying and saying, God, what do you want us to do? And... Uh, in 2004, one of our guys said, we ought to set a goal. He's a salesman. You know how salesmen are. We ought to set a goal to, give, to, to be able to invest a million dollars a month into the kingdom. And we thought, yeah, yeah okay, whatever. And, uh, but the next year, our industry just started booming. 2005 to 2008 were great years in our industry. And, and we went from a $50 million company to a $250 million company during that four-year period. And... Uh, and throughout that period and ever since, we've been able to invest over over a million dollars a month into the kingdom. And we're just amazed at what God is doing. We have no vision for this, no thought that this would ever happen. God has just chosen to pour out um, uh, a huge amount of business success on our company. The Barnhards immediately donated half of their profits to charity and reinvested the other half to grow the business. The $50,000 they gave to charity in that first year was more than Alan's entire salary. This voluntary income cap kept the Barnhards from ever earning more than their peers at Sunday school. But Alan will be the first to say that this is not some poverty lifestyle. We have six children. The poverty level for a family of eight is $35,000. And uh, that's about $4,400 per person, which would put you actually in the top 15% of people in the world. If you lived at the poverty level, that would put you in the top 15% of the world. And, uh, and we live at about three and a half times that level. So, so our salary is not a, a sacrificial salary. We make about $125,000 a year and have everything that we need. Every bit as amazing as their engineering prowess or capitalist success story is their guiding moral vision, keeping them accountable from day one. A vision that's now a special sort of inheritance for their children. The Barnhart kids maybe didn't get new cars when they turned 16, but they certainly got something. Our children have had the benefit of not having to grow up as rich kids, which is a difficult thing for kids to do. 
They've also had the benefit of, of seeing um, the world. We've, we've traveled with them a lot. And we've also had benefit of, of people from in all types of ministries sitting at the dinner table talking about what they do. And so our kids' perspective has been broadened. And uh, we believe in leaving our kids a rich inheritance. And we are trying to do that. We think that has very little to do with money. In fact, we think it would be almost, it's almost counterproductive often, most often, to leave them money. But uh, we leave, we'd want to leave them a very rich inheritance. Reporting for Our American Stories, I'm Stan Dunn. That's great work by Stan. And there's one other point I wanted to add here that we didn't cover in the story. The Barnharts, they keep operational control of this business, but they've given ownership of the business to the National Christian Foundation. And they did it to protect their hearts. And in the end, to keep that business going. And when profits are pushed out, they go to the kingdom. And that's the best of both worlds, my friends. The Christian heart at work and the entrepreneurial mind at work. And you'll hear this story only here on Our American Stories and stories like it. More after these messages. 